Oh yeah, welcome back to the Factory 5 Records Podcast. We're back at it again with an amazing episode. My guests today, Pat and Susan Kearns, formerly of the Portland metro area, now residents of Joshua Tree, California, where they started an amazing studio called Goat Mountain, and uh, I was just out there for a few days tracking a new record from uh, Andrew Leach, and I got a chance to finally sit down and get them on the pod. I've been wanting to get them on the pod for two years. It just never worked out. I finally got out there. We finally did an episode, and I, I think it's probably one of the best 525 podcasts that I've put out. He's an amazing dude. He's been an owner and operator of recording studios for almost 30 years, and uh, he's got a fabulous list of credits. Uh, he's even got a Wikipedia page. Check this out. Pat Kearns, born November 10th, 1970, is an American record producer, recording engineer, songwriter, guitarist, and vocalist. What you're listening to right now is his old band, Blue Skies for Black Hearts, who were absolute road warriors. Those guys went everywhere. What you're listening to right now is um, from an app called Wolfgang's Vault, which is where uh, live concerts live. In 2012, they happened to be at the Day Trotter Studios in Rock Island, Illinois, and they cut this live. And um, it's amazing. It's one of my favorite Blue Sky songs, Fridays After Five. You can check it out. The Michael Lewis slide guitar is fan-fucking-tastic on this track. Let's take a little listen real quick. little teaser. fucking incredible his list of credits they're, they're way too long to mention uh exploding hearts just to name one uh sons of huns an amazing portland band um and he's also got his own records he's done a number of solo records uh most recently he put out a record called getting lost which you can find on his band camp and uh, this is my favorite song. It's called Last of the Golden Rays, and uh, it's got a great solo. I think it's incredible. Take a listen. Got a beautiful bottle of Costco Bordeaux, which I'm imbibing. Cheers to all you 525 fans out there. Yeah, so check out that record. It's really good. Uh, you probably heard the Rhodes keyboard there. That was the great Mark Breitenbach who played uh, on all of this record. 
also played on the majority of the Blue Skies for Black Hearts Records. And uh, I'm just so excited to finally be able to get these guys on the podcast. Um, if you're in the market for a recording studio and you're in Southern California, Goat Mountain, man, it's amazing. This this is an amazing live room, 14-foot ceilings, designed by an architect. No parallel walls. The reverb is fucking phenomenal. He's got these amazing room mics. They're uh, Edwina's. We talk about all this on the podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. And uh, yeah, if you're in the market for a recording studio in SoCal, this is, uh, he's completely off the grid. It's solar powered. They got panels on the roof. He's got 30 years of owning and operating studios under him. Uh, it's an amazing place to go and record. And, you know, the, the thing about most studios is there's no windows, right? It's in some commercial lease space and there's, you know, it's a live room, a control room. There's no windows. It's just, you know, it's like boxy and claustrophobic and the best part about Goat Mountain is after you get done cutting a track and you want to have a listen, you just pop out onto the patio, onto the deck, and then you're, you have this amazing view and you get to get outside in the sunshine and, uh, it's just an amazing experience. I can't recommend it highly enough. I'm so excited to finally have these guys on the podcast. So I hope you enjoy the episode. It's the 525 Records podcast, Pat and Susan Kearns. Enjoy. The good old days. You guys miss Portland at all at this point? Certain things about it. What do you think, Pat? Um, I might miss it a little more than Pat does. <laughs> yeah, Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I miss I miss things like the the fruit in the summer and summers in Portland in general. And I, but I mean, a lot of what I miss about Portland, it's not there anymore. So uh, I feel the same exact way. Yeah. So it's it's weird to miss it and be like. When you you ask me that, it's like you miss it, like you want to go back. There's n- not nothing to go back to. That uh, not nothing, but all the the things that I was there for in the first place don't really exist. Or there'd be narrow disappointment if we went back. At least don't the same facets don't exist. I mean, uh, I just I miss the variety of music that we had around there. It seems to be dominated by Americana now, which is a genre I'm walking through myself, but uh, it was just so much more interesting when, you know, weird shit went on, uh, when you'd show up and just have your mind blown by uh, some Portland strangeness, you know? You remember a band called Gatheist? I love oh, yeah, Gatheist. We love those guys. Yeah. I saw that was one of your I th- I don't know who was there. I think it was a um what's the Mark Brackett? Sons of Hunts. Yeah. Sons of Hunts. I used Gatheist. to play with them a lot, yeah. Yeah. At Ron's Homes. I remember that show. I was there. Yeah. Well, yeah. I can't remember if you guys played, but No, I didn't play. I think I was just hanging out. I don't think I ever I mean Blue Skies might have played with Gatheist. I know that my old band, Big Jim played with Willamette Jack's Finger and Toe Clinic, which was uh, the main guy, the uh, the guy that wears a bow tie in Gatheist. That was his band a long, long time ago. It was weird. It was weird. I mean, he's, he's, I don't, I mean, I've met those guys. I don't know any of them personally. I think the main guy, his name might be Jason. I'm not sure. Sorry, dude, if I didn't get it right. But I like those guys. And, uh, 
that was the kind of thing. Like you could all be from different scenes, and there was a, just a weird, nice camaraderie between bands there. Uh, not all the time, but but most of the time. Welcome to the Five Two Five Records podcast. My guest today, I've been wanting to have on this show for a long time. Uh, we finally made it happen. We're out in Joshua Tree, California, home of the fabulous recording facility Goat Mountain, the Goat Mountain Studios. Uh, owned by Pat and Susan Kearns, who are my guests today. They're former uh, Portland exiles that have moved down to the Mojave. And uh, I couldn't be happier because I live in Vegas, and uh, now I can just pop over whenever I get a chance. And uh, there's no better place to do a record. So it's my honor and privilege to have Pat and Susan Kearns on the 525 Records podcast today. How are you guys doing? Doing really good. It's really good to have you here, Elliot. Thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Um. So take me back to Seattle and uh, those early days, you know, I mean, uh, is that where you got your musical start? Kind of. I was from Portland, Oregon. I moved to Seattle to go to college in 1989, the summer of 89. And uh, I thought, I mean, I was really interested in, in bands in high school and interested in music and that kind of thing. But I thought... Like when you got to college, you're paying for the school, you better get serious. And so I put all my guitars away and amps away. And that lasted, uh, I brought them up to Seattle with me, but they were like all underneath my desk, pushed back, just sort of in storage, like I wasn't going to get them out. I think that lasted like two weeks. And uh, my roommate was uh, a member of the Sub Pop Singles Club. And the Nirvana single "Love Buzz" had just come out, and it was a radio hit. Yeah, and uh, especially up there, and yeah, just like kind of, I mean, if you were trying to take life seriously and get away from the music business, I probably couldn't have picked a worse place to move in the fall of '89 and late summer of '89. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. Uh, and so I just got, I wasn't like right back into it or anything like that, but I participated and went to shows and saw Mudhoney and Alice in Chains and uh, many times and uh, Nirvana, of course, and uh, the Melvins and Love Battery and Melvins on tour the right Gits, now. Seven Year Bitch, those were all kind of Hammerbox, some of my favorite bands uh, of that era. And, uh, I just, uh, I got sucked into it and uh, tried to still go to school at the same time. And then somewhere along the line, uh, I still stayed in school, but but music became more dominant. And I started working at uh, KCMU, this uh, on-campus radio station at the University of Washington, and uh, uh, became a DJ and doing late nights and afternoon drive time and and we should say now that you are currently a dj you've got a fabulous radio show the z1077 local music showcase that's correct if you have tune in you should be able to get it um i listen pretty much every week yeah uh, there's a podcast version so yeah, yeah. I, that's how i hear it yeah. which you know that's the thing i was really meaning to ask you what if you had to cut that show live in the radio studio at the same exact time every week i mean right now you can cut it, an episode whenever just you want for how much i get paid it would be very difficult because uh, it's you know a radio show it locks your schedule so it's really nice i cut it live here in the studio like uh i mean i 
more or less cut it live. I actually fast forward, I preview the songs before the show so I know what I'm going to play like a normal show. But during the show, I just cut the brakes really fast. Uh, yeah, uh, and if you don't feel like doing it, you can come back later on that day or yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know? yeah, through it. No, that almost never happens. It, it just, you know, I cut it in order live. There's maybe a couple edits where, like, uh, I mess up a band's name and I cut that out so they don't have to deal with that. That's the common one. <laughs> I mean, you got to fill an hour every week. That's two. A, it's two hours now. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, yeah that it's, extended. Yeah. And on the most recent episode, the October 9th episode of the Z1077, uh, I was listening to it while driving down here, and there was a fantastic band on that episode by the name of Yvonne Champagne, and uh, <laughs> with a an album called Murder Wins? It's, yep. a con- it's a concept album. Okay. Tell me about it. So- we're a three-piece band. There's two bass guitars and a drummer, all female. And um, we uh, we we started doing like concept albums. So um, this this new album, Murder Wins, it's all about the murder wins in the desert. If you don't know what that is, I don't. Tell me, what okay. are the murder wins? When do they so, come? It's twice a it's, year, it's speci- maybe. Yeah, it's specific. Well, kind of. It's specific to this area. Uh, it's related to the Santa Ana winds and so It could happen at winds. any time, but there is a season. Yeah. So is it an easterly flow where it's offshore, where it reverses the normal pattern? Is that... They actually usually come from that direction okay. at this point and blow this way. But they kind of be. But they can come from easterly. From, uh, uh, behind us. I wish the listeners could see this beautiful landscape. We're on the patio and a bench looking south over the fabulous valley landscape. Uh, we just experienced a, one of every mm-hmm. night seems like an amazing sunset. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But ever since I've heard murder winds, I can't get it out of my head. I just keep <laughs> thinking murder winds make you drink running like a freight train through your day. I mean, uh, yeah. Yvonne Champagne, check it out. It's pretty cool. And you can hear them. Yeah, these these winds are kind of late winter, and they're cold, and they're consistent, and they go on for weeks, and they keep you inside. Sometimes it just gets to the point where you're just like, there's a thing called wind exhaustion here, where you just get exhausted from the constant assault of wind. So that's what that record's about. That You know, we get a little of that in Vegas, but we just go in a casino and, you know. I mean, you guys have been out here five years now, six years? Something? I've been out here five and a half years now. We're at Landers, California. Well, full-time five and a half years. We've been here uh, eight years now. What's the difference between Landers and Flamingo Heights? Like, how far would you have to go to be well, out of Landers? Flamingo Heights is those lights up against the mountains over there. Okay. So, uh, you know the market you keep going to, the Halliday? Oh, yeah. I'm that's, the that's, big spender down there. Yeah, that's kind of the, yeah, exactly. Everybody is who comes to the studio. It's really Once funny. you make that left at the Halliday and kind of go down that road, that's Flamingo Heights area. Which I got to say, I ran into some, uh, I think, single mothers in the market today. Just, they're all going in there to buy lottery tickets and booze. <laughs> and they had their kids with them. And it, they were all like blonde hair. <laughs> I was like, wow, this is uh, the busiest I've ever seen the market, you know? Oh, uh, the market gets busy. It's I mean, there's not much going on in Landers. And so people hang out. There's a the morning holiday. scene there for yeah. coffee. But I mean, being out here, you got, are there like different little neighborhood cliques? Like, you know. Yeah. No. 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 I think. I think. I think two things go on. I think you end up. You tend to hang out with people from your neighborhood just because they're close to you. But you also tend to find 
your brothers and sisters that, uh, you know, they may live on the other side of the basin, like in Wonder Valley, but you have things in common, like maybe liking live music and art and that kind of thing. And you hang out with them too. Uh, but by proximity, you know, uh, you maybe don't hang out with them as much as you might hang out with an artist in your own community. So you get these just natural, uh, by the selection of geography and, and, and common interests. It's a big change. Build. And we're it, friends with a lot of musicians and there's limited um, performance spaces out here. So, yeah, I mean, you're bound to play with a band from the neighboring community right. just by default. I mean, being in the Pacific Northwest, you know, it's lush, it's green for the most part. Maybe not anymore with the mega drought, but, you know, it always used to be nice and cool and moist and lots of rain. And, uh, you know, coming down here, it's a big, it's a big change, you know. And well, uh, if I do anything, I want to make a change. Yeah. I, I, uh, I want to say like I'm one of those people when I go big I, or when I go, I go big. It's not, it's not like that. It's, it's more like. If I've lived in a rainy place my whole life, like, and I have to move, it's probably, I would rather it be really different in some way than Portland. Well, speaking of going big, you've, you built a studio, brand new construction. Uh, you guys have what, five acres out here? Yeah, something. Like yeah, five acres. And uh, it was an arduous process, right? Yeah. Like, you know, uh, contractors laying concrete. You it, was, know. it was a big project. The and, big, biggest thing I've ever done like that in my life. Uh, and it took uh, at least a year, right? Or was it two years? Or? Two years it of construction, took, I believe. Uh, a year, year and three quarters of construction, I think. And then... And then uh, you got all the wiring you know, and everything that like makes the nine, studio work. Nine months, really, to set the studio up once... Uh, like right at the top of pandemic, March 2020, March, around March 12th, like right when it started, that was when the workmen kind of completed up and there was just baseboards. Susan and I did the baseboards and that was the last like thing to be done to the building. And we started that right at the top of pandemic. And then like you have to go through everything. That was just like closing the building up and then it was like getting all the gear in and moving things around and wiring the place up. Uh, even though we started, like the building was done in March 2020. It wasn't until November 2020 that like we closed up the, the wiring tunnel and the pits and things like that. And that's the point. Where it was ready to go. Yeah, where I see this the studio is officially open when we didn't have to open the wiring pit to do 10 other things which was uh you know i snuck gabriel hard in here in september of 2020 but it was like as soon as he left i i unscrewed the the panels the wood panels that are over where i sit at the console and opened that pit back up <laughs> and kept wiring for another month and a half i mean it's uh, i wish we had some video i mean the snakes of wires what i love is the spirals going around the uh, one leg of the console platform where, you know, it's like, you know, two different groups of wires snaking around each other. Yeah. There's I mean, uh, it well, just looks cool. That's going over to the computer. I know what you're talking about. That particular set is going over to the computer. So there's 24 ins, 24 outs in that spool going down there. But there's also two in that spool for the headphone amp. So that's a total of 50 lines that are, uh, 
We might as well it. go full on gear slut. And uh, your console is an AMEC. It's an AMEC Angela from 1985. It's uh, man. From Portland, Oregon. It happens to be from Portland, Oregon. So when you get under there trying to wire the patch bay, is it, uh, you know, they're all old school. Yeah, we did all that. So when I got it here, what happened is I got it here. I bought it from uh, Rex Recording in Portland, Oregon. And, and there's another board in the studio. Which... Yeah, it's my old console. Okay, and that's it says Rex on the cover. Is that... That's because I have cover the from... cover from the AMAC on that one, uh... too, because I always use the AMAC, so it's pretty dust-free because, like, I'm using it. Uh, my hands are all over it, and we wipe it down and all that kind of thing. That one right. sits over there, so. There's a beautiful uh, two-inch Otari. I mean, you, yep. you've got this, like, horde of amazing gear, and I want to dive into your mic collection. Well, we should we should talk about some of these, though. Uh if anybody's out there and you are a serious studio person, a total gear slut. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking for a special place for that one that's under the cover to go to. Uh, that's a special console, and uh, I have to take care of it. And so, uh, part of taking care of it is passing it on when it's time to the right person. And I'm ready to pass it on, but I haven't found the right person. So. If you're out there, I have a Sound Workshop Series 34. It's been fully customized because uh, it was hired from AM Recording in, I think it was 88 or 86. I can't remember. But anyway, it was on the uh, uh, mobile trucks for the Rattle and Hum tour. Uh, not the tour to promote Rattle and Hum, but the tour that they made the movie from. Uh, whatever. I guess that was the the Joshua Tree tour. And is that that was the board? We should I should preface this. Pat, <laughs> Pat Kearns, the amazing Pat Kearns, has owned and operated studios for the last twenty five years. It's uh, going to be thirty years next year. Starting with <laughs> a little studio called Studio Thirteen. No, well, so my first session was thirty years ago uh, on a four track. Uh, cassette. I think Studio 30, 13, I want to say, opened in about 97, so 25 years ago. In the west side of Portland, as I recall. Yeah, and they, on Capitol Highway, where Capitol Highway began in, in uh, uh, Hillsdale. And uh, what I remember is we, we our bands, we tracked at a place called the Color Lab, which was usually... Very short-lived, but man, a that, very was a, intense that was a fucking space. That was a huge space. The square footage yeah. was ridiculous. I how did you even get that commercial lease? I mean, uh, I just got real. I was working on a record for Jerry Joseph at the time at Jackpot Recording. We were also using Studio Thirteen, and they saw Studio Thirteen. They were like, "You ever thought about moving?" I was like, I, "I'm thinking about moving right now." But I was like, "I mean, I've been busy on your record. I haven't thought about it." And Brad Rosen, the drummer was like, I know these dudes, let me introduce you to them. And uh, I just kind of forgot about it. And then like six weeks later or something like that, he's like, I'm with this guy. I think his name was, uh, I think it was Eli. Eli Babs, that's right. Uh, and he was the son of Babs, who was, uh, I, is it Mike Babs? I can't remember his name, but he's Ken Kesey's best friend. Huh. And so all these people were, uh, their parents were merry pranksters. Ooh. And these properties, I sort of found out were, I believe this property anyway, uh, was owned by the merry pranksters or somebody affiliated. And 
Eli was running it. And, uh, yeah, he let us run it for a little while. <laughs> it was somewhere downtown. Yeah, it was in the old Paramount Work Paramount Filmworks building uh, on 17th and... I don't remember the name of the street, but I remember... Lovejoy? 17th oh, and Lovejoy. Lovejoy, that's it. You were rocking a moped at that time, right? Uh, it was not a moped. It was a scooter. A okay. scooter. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't want to get a point. So this is the location of the Color Lab. Uh, we were, One of my bands was lucky enough to try a record there, which we had a fabulous time doing. Yeah. They, it was the most amazing echo chamber. Yes. How, tell me about it. That was amazing. So that was... Uh, we had two of... In this... It was 2,500 square foot space with a stage in there. Huge chandelier, good ceilings, like old Portland-type warehouse building. The load-in and load-out was great. It was like a warehouse. Yeah, you pulled into this weird alley and just like came down through double doors, through steps onto a beautiful floor that everybody set up on. We just baffled off there. What was the echo chamber before it was an echo chamber? What were they using it as? It was the uh, film vault uh, to keep uh, the reels of film safe in case of a fire. And so they were built uh, with like, they were completely made out of concrete, but they were, it was like super thick concrete and they were long. I feel like it was like, they were probably like 10 by what, 60 or something, 10 by 10 by 40 kind of thing. And you kept the name Color Lab. um, That was because, yeah, part of the film. Because film of the paramount, yeah, there was a place called the Color Lab where they started doing film processing uh, in that building. Well, I don't know if we were in that space. We were just looking. I've always looked at the history or things in the area to name my studios, with the exception of Studio Thirteen. And but, so, how did you wind up wiring the echo chamber? Like, what were the mics? We just and- we just took a, the band PA and we had it in there and we ha- uh, had it on stand. And I don't remember M- Matt Morgan, my partner, had some funky mics. He probably doesn't even remember, but we just dedicated these mics. We like hung them from the light in the back. No, it was the other way. The, I think the speakers were in the very back and the microphones were in the very front in case we need, wanted to get at them. Maybe it was the other way. I don't even remember. But the 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 microphone was hanging from a boom that was like uh, taped and everything to the light fixture up there (laughs) and uh uh, we had a pair of microphones so you could do reverb and stereo and and you just crank it through the pa and uh uh, the mics were in the back i'm remembering this now okay uh uh, and i'll tell you why i remember it uh yeah we would just crank the pa to like send signals back in there like a traditional rank uh echo chamber but since we had that big vault door we would also sometimes just uh run headphones in there and like on the soda pop kids record uh that i did like a lot of the super echoey backing vocals that especially the falsetto stuff it's me and Devin uh singing in unison these falsetto parts and and we were just in the room Right, you know, and that was the sound. So, like, uh, that was what I was going to ask you: is how, of all the sessions you did at the Color Lab, how many times did you actually use, and it actually made the final cut? Probably, probably every time, just really? because because it was new and fresh. And when I have something, anything that's new and fresh, I use it a lot. But uh, 
That was also really good. It was seven seconds of echo. And you could do things like we could throw a slow gate on it to shorten it up if we wanted to. And, uh, you know, um, it, it was, I don't know, still to this day, <laughs> you've seen it with this recording we've been doing with Andrew Leach. Andrew Leach, the great Andrew Leach, uh, ukulele master. I just, I'm so attracted to that natural reverb sound. Uh, a real room just sounds really cool to me. Uh, so even if it's blasting out of a PA and we're catching it in there, that's like more uh, real and spontaneous and there's real air than, you know, a plug-in or a pedal or, or a rack mount effects. In the case of Andrew Leach, in there we have a big old ribbon mic on the ukulele because I just wanted to sort of darken up, tame the picking of the ukulele. This is the current live room at Goat Mountain this Studios. This is the current live room at Goat Mountain on the, the session ceilings, now. It feels like they're 28 feet tall. I don't no, know. they're 14. They're, it, it's immense. It's a big room and it, it feels, feels great. great though. Yeah. And so we're tracking uke. Yeah. So we have this big ribbon mic on Andrew's uh, ukulele and then we have a, a, a 47 on his vocal, a big tube uh mic you know uh medium diaphragm i think it's medium large diaphragm but big old tube mic on his vocal and then to get what we're talking about now these natural reverb sounds i have two edwinas ear trumpet edwinas uh the the live room is already big the live room is uh about a thousand square feet and i have these two edwinas stretched out from andrew far left and right not all the way in the corners or sides uh we're sort of uh the room isn't square and andrew's not and it's not square on purpose it's not square on purpose and this is where we're going with ignacio our architect but i have these two edwinas and they're they're not even pointed at andrew they're pointed up at the ceiling and they're just there to capture stereo reverb in the room and the great thing about the room is by design ignacio I don't know everything he went through. He could tell you everything, but he, it's shot out in some scientific way to be good for music. And one of the things I do know is that there's no parallel walls in this room anywhere. The ceiling to the floor, the walls to each other, to everybody. Everything's just a little skewed enough. It's very pleasing to the eye. It looks pretty normal. It's a carefully know? curated, designed for exactly what you're doing room yeah which is hard to come by most people repurpose you know other rooms the decay of the reverb is so smooth it's well that's that's with the design with these non-parallel walls you don't have slaps building up because you have an even like a large space reflecting the same thing back and forth and this is what makes everything really intelligible you can understand everything in this room the way our brains work, our brains like, on all our senses, our brains like edges. If you touch something, you, you run your finger across a piece of paper, but somebody's written something on that paper with ballpoint pen, you don't really feel a difference of the paper. You feel like, oh, it's like this, it's smooth, and then, oh, and you hit that pen mark, it's like an edge. When you look up at the sky, like a night sky, you see the edges of the discs, the stars, the moon, things like that. Uh, with hearing, it's the the same thing. We're looking for sibilance, 
edges. We can hear tone and we experience it just like, you know, rubbing your finger across the paper, a long thing. But it's it's really like, you know, the roughness in those things, in those waves, and sometimes the edges that really bring your attention out. And so the downside of that is when you have a room that produces a lot of that slapback in a vocal so when somebody goes hey and it goes hey, hey, hey like this like an echo chamber yeah no echo chambers are usually smooth okay by design I just mean, you know uh but that slap things become unintelligible it becomes harder to hear understand somebody's singing it gets muddled it gets muddled there's so, an echo in there but it's like a pleasing echo it rolls off it just rolls in like a nice circular smooth. yes like a wave cresting it just yeah without falls. without any slaps right you know and uh, that's one of the secrets to audio, you know? I feel like you could model that yes. in a digital plug-in and make a oh, billion yeah. dollars. No, <laughs> so I use, I mean, I use stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, uh, I have, they're called emulation reverbs. Okay. When I use a plug-in reverb, this is funny, these are the reverbs I still prefer to this day, and they're emulations that I've had, you know, for a decade or more, but some of them are famous uh, reverb chambers uh, of various studios that are out there. I don't even know if some of these are legal, so we're not going to mention which uh, studios. But I have these emulation reverbs, and they're just algorithms of these rooms. And you can put put the plug-in in and run a sound through it, and it's, it comes back, you know, like you're in the room. And they do this by striping a room. They basically... Uh, it's, it's called striping a room, but they take first low tone pulses that have moved to high, you know, boom, 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 boom. They do that across the, the room and they record it and then they do a sweep. And from that, they're able to back engineer the math somehow. Uh, Algorithms, know. grids. Yes, yeah, make that and now you can have that reverb anywhere. Technology. It's an amazing room. And uh, tell me again the architect's name. What oh, it? Ignacio Moreno Elst. And then, like, did you guys hang out with him a bunch, or did you meet him? Yeah, or? yeah, no. Yeah, he's Pat a... was. Um, Pat um, knew his wife before they were married, Katie McIntosh, and she was a publicist. And she worked with Pat's band, Blue Skies for Black Hearts, for a long time. And um, we met Ignacio. When did we meet Ignacio? Be- before the wedding. I met Ignacio in. Portland. It was just kind of a slow uh, friendship. It, it was mostly because, like, I'd be traveling through wherever Katie was living, and we would have a meeting in person, and I'd get to meet her husband. We'd, you know, we'd fix food together, that kind of thing. But they got married in Las Vegas when, um, shortly after I met Pat. It was yeah. What was the name of that agency? It was XO XO Publicity. Publicity. Okay. Yep. And we went to their wedding in Vegas and met their whole family. And um, we, their, their family's like our family now. They're, they're, um, his sisters and their husbands are pretty much like family now. And uh, eventually, at this point, Nacho was working. Uh, Nacho's Ignacio. Yeah, Nacho, Nacho <laughs> was working for uh, American Apparel, designing stores and that kind of thing. And he decided to go to architecture school. And he started this eco-architecture school at the University of Oregon. And I would just hang out with him. And, you know, I was interested in what my friend was doing. And, like, wow, like, 
you know, what are you working on? And he got one summer, like Katie was all excited. I showed up and she's like, did Ignacio tell you he's in Dwell? And uh, she, you know, as a publicist, it got him in Dwell. I think that this is how this probably went down. Right. Uh, but it was over a house that he designed on a lake in Indiana, uh, where Katie's originally from. And it was like, it was the uh, her family's lake house. And he'd remodeled it, but really redone it. Uh, he kind of has a Frank Lloyd Wright sensibility where he's like into like nature and what the view is from this window and you know there's a tree there and like the sunsets over here and like you, he frames all that which yeah. is um, some of the inspiration um, that he brought here to the studio. And yeah, when I asked him about that, you know, like what's up with the house and dwell, that's all he told me. He didn't tell me anything about the house. He told me about the tree and the moon. just so we're like that's our guy like (laughs) spiritual yeah so like at this point no it wasn't like that's our guy like it was not even on my radar but when i realized i had a problem that i was going to lose my studio in portland i started very quickly uh i want to dive all into that story working on uh what i was going to do when this idea occurred to me, I mean, it was hilarious. Uh, Let me stop you right there. Perma press recording. Yeah. The location was right next to Centaur Guitar, Sandy Boulevard. Yeah, 28th and Sandy Boulevard. The the console that you have that we to make a callback that you're just putting a pitch for anybody that wants to have a good console in a <laughs> new home. That's that console. Yeah, that console. was the one at Perma Press. Yes. Okay. So Perma Press. When did you get in there? What year was it? It was right after the color lab, right? You didn't have it. It would have been 2007 because I was there 10 years in a month. So, yeah, 2007. And then tell me about, so everything's going good. It's a smaller space than you're used to, but it's really working. It's tight. It was just really good because it was behind my friend's guitar shop, and I really needed to get rid of my business partner from the color lab. Uh and I could afford this place, and it was actually close to my house that I owned. Like, I could just walk to and from work. You procured yet another commercial lease. Yeah, yeah, that was my, my second one. Do you have some kind of commercial agent? No, no, no. Like, I mean, it's hilarious. I went from the Merry Pranksters to my punk rock friends. This that was talk, all Portland. Talked like, me it, from it was just moving kind of like from a handshake Seattle deal. Portland. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't need an agent. It was yeah. just, you know, here yeah, you go. It was, you know, the building was illegal. My toilet, nobody knew where my toilet drained to. That was the kind of <laughs> situation we had there. How do you find out about the availability of that space? Through- oh, I got kicked out of a session. Uh, it turned out that the pranksters, or at least their kids, were very difficult landlords, and so I was getting really busy there because it was yeah, a good Yeah, didn't they have contingencies like when they're practicing, you can't record or something? No, the it rules was... kind of always changed, and so he he just got jealous. He wanted to be in a band, and he just figured that like having this recording studio there, he could be in any band that happened to show up. But he wanted to be in a band that was uh, like what his parents were into because the, that that particular band was held on a pedestal of the highest thing. So, for example, this didn't happen this particular day. It either happened shortly before this It happened shortly before this incident. The week before. Uh, you got kicked out of a session. Yeah. It might have even been this session. I think it was. So this is what happened. Uh... This band, my favorite everything, showed up to record, 
and it was really intense for me because uh, one of the members uh, has Hodgkin's lymphoma and he's dying. And uh, we're trying to do the session. One day we show up in the afternoon. It was like a Thursday or Friday. I'm just getting set up, getting ready to go. The band, everybody's excited. Um, the fellow's feeling well, you know, so things are good. And uh, we go to record and the prankster kid shows up and he's in the mood to just jam. He doesn't have anybody to jam with, but he wants to jam. But they're recording and their music is not the kind of music that he's into at all. And so he has a freak out that we need to clear the studio for a while. And I think what happened is I sent them, I don't think they witnessed this. I think uh, I sent them down to Slabtown, which was the bar down the road. So anyway, while I'm negotiating with Prankster Kid about like, so how long you want the studio so I can get these guys back in and Has record. he paid you yet? Who, the band? Yeah. The the band this is all free pro bono no the the prankster guy yeah he's my landlord oh uh, i owe him money right. like i didn't owe right, him right, money right, i was so i was so basically the landlord thought he could barge in on any session uh, anytime and yeah without a plan and just bust up the jam. session yeah, and say just like, just oh, like I'm you guys aren't I, recording guys are over. you jam. guys aren't recording i'm jamming you're out of here uh, okay so that's what he told us i sent them down the road and as i'm discussing with him uh the situation, like when can we get back in? How long do you want it? Like, uh, he uh, holds me up. And this dude's huge. He was like a lineman at University of Oregon, kind of thing on the football team. And he fucking holds me up against the wall with his elbow or forearm, kind of thing, and starts yelling at me. He's testing me. He says, "Who's the greatest band, in, you know, of all time or in the world or some bullshit like this." And I was like, I don't know, the Beatles? And he fucking melted down. He's like, you're wrong. In my face, the Grateful Dead. And I was like, I knew that. I knew that with you, man. Well, That's sorry. up there with you. You saw the dead several That's times. That's so yeah. fucked. It's so unprofessional. It, so fucking weird. It was, it was so weird, this experience. What a dick. Uh, he's a dick. Uh, that was the last, maybe the last time I spoke with him. Cause I, that was the moment I knew I was like, this isn't working out and this is possibly going to get weirder if I stick around. Uh, so we started looking for a place or like in that moment in my mind. But the funny thing was I walked down the street to meet the band and this festival was going on that Susan and I were just trying to remember the name of. That's Slabtown. Yeah, and it was like 12 punk rock bands on a Friday night, you know, and this went into Saturday and Sunday, like all day, all night. And uh, uh, Jason was there from Centaur Guitar, Jason Snell, who's one of the people who talked me from moving to Seattle to Portland. One of the best music stores. Well, you got to go back to Studio 13 because there's a connection to Jason Snell with Studio 13. Oh, Studio 13 was in Jason's dad's basement. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Snell's basement. So, I mean, these guys are, are tight. Like, they're like family to me. And... Uh, Jason and I run into each other. We go wild sometimes without seeing each other. It's like, dude, what's happening? I'm like, shit's not good, buddy. 
And he's like, really? He's like, well, stuff isn't good for us either. They're, they're roadie, the Muddy River Nightmare Band's roadie had a record store in the other side of Centaur Guitar, and he hadn't paid his rent for like six months or something like that. So they were in the process of uncomfortably having to kick their own roadie uh, out of the shop, you know? And uh, he's like, dude, do you want to be the renter? And I'm like, I can, I can handle But I that, remember us, like, know? we kind of, like, went to see it, and it's just, like, there's, like, stuff all over the place. There's, it's like, yeah. oh, my God, how are you, like, how are we going to go from, like, the uh, color lab, like, the glamorous color lab with the big chandelier to this? Back <laughs> how to are we going to do this? Like, yeah. Back <laughs> but, to Studio 13, really, because it was, Bill, that was Bill's the situation. Now, like, yeah. he's, like, a workhorse powerhouse, like, dad, dude. Unbelievable. And he just, he like, was, yeah. We can knock, you know, we'll knock these walls down and we'll make this and, you know, we'll soundproof this and there's going to be a loft here and, like, it's going to be rad and, like... Well, it was our idea to take the... They had a loft in the, the live room, what became the live room. So the live room used to be two stories, like a regular loft, and Jason had his office in there. And it was, like, just all plywood and paper. <laughs> everywhere like printers like stacked he's kind of a hoarder there. sorry Jason yeah. if you're listening sorry uh, you're kind of a hoarder <laughs> <laughs> shout out to Jason Snell <sighs> anyway uh, yeah so it's, Matt to give Matt Morgan credit he recognized that he's like dude we should blow the loft out because he was he was considering making the move with me it was mutual in the end I, I had decided, like, I gave, in the end, I was giving Matt a call to be like, dude, I'm renting this myself and you're out, you know? <laughs> and he, same phone call, like, hey, I'm really glad you called. I'm not in. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, yeah, like, so that worked out well. Like, okay, that's cool. Happily ever after. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes, very, like very that. happily. I hope he's doing okay. He was working for Modest Mouse for a minute. Yeah, he was doing some high profile gigs for a this, while, huh? This is what I'm saying. It's hard out here in the studio game. You want to own a studio? You want to make a space? I mean, it takes a lot, dude. It's it's sometimes it's easier easier having a partner, but you know, like I I was always really um what's the right word? It's not envious. It's like kind of and it's not in awe. That's a little too strong, but uh the type foundry guys like how they cooperated to make that partnership work. I mean, I I just never ever heard anybody talking dirt about the others or bullshit. I'm sure shit happened, you know. That was uh, a great space, a type foundry. Yeah, but uh, they did a really good job, and I I feel like they were stronger because of the partnership than three separate dudes. Uh, people rotated through, so I'm not naming names, but Adam and Jason were my main guys over there. I used to work there too, uh, just as a freelance guy now and again. So you're at Permapress. Everything's going great. You're booking sessions. People are coming in. They're tracking. There's awesome trains going by, which yeah. <laughs> adds for incredible sound effects. It ends up on the recording. Yeah. The Irish bar, what was it? Oh, uh, Katie O'Brien's. Breakfast, yeah, breakfast and screwdrivers. I need to go yeah. back in the next time I'm in Portland. That's one thing we lack place. here in the desert. We need a good a dive good bar A good bar, yeah. <laughs> Everything's going great. And then one day, somebody buys a plot of land right behind the studio and decides to build condos. Well, no, I was out before that because I, I realized I uh, we were leaving on tour it would have been blue skies last tour so like uh follow 2014 it was and uh 
We were going out around late October into early November, West Coast, like a half dozen, five dates, something like that. And uh, as we were packing the van to leave for the first show, my neighbor who had this weed store that just like, I mean, I watched his people park in our parking lot all day and go in and out. So I was like, this guy's fucking making bank. I am in the wrong business. Oh my God, this guy's making so much money. And then as we're, you know, shutting the doors to the van and getting ready to hop on I-84, this fellow comes over and he's like, hey man, I just want to let you know, uh, come the election in November, weed is going to go full legal here. 2016. Uh, That's when it ended up going, but the election was uh, 2014, the fall. Okay. And he's like, I'm going to open a weed cafe in your space, so I'm going to buy you out of your lease. And I was like, whoa, you know, wow. Because, like, if somebody could buy me out of my lease, like, this is the guy, like, for sure. And I get the motivation and everything. It's not really being a dick. Like, I appreciate the heads up. You know, he knew I wasn't going to be psyched about it, but I thought that was a real solid thing to do. And the nice thing about being in a band and on the road is you got a moment to think in the van. And so this whole thing kept wheeling through my head. I was like, I wonder if our landlord will let him buy us out of our lease. And then I was like, you know, that doesn't really matter. Our building's a piece of shit. And really what's going on is the neighborhood's getting nicer. Gentrification's rolling up. And this guy opening his weed cafe, that's what he wants to open his weed cafe up to. He doesn't want to open his weed cafe up on piece of shit, Sandy. He sees that the zipper just opened and we got fancy restaurants suddenly. And there's about to be a 50-story condo right next door. Well, that's what ended up moving in. So, uh, Can I stop you right there, though? I, yeah. I want to talk about something. The Blue Skies van. Yeah. Blue stripe, white. Vanessa. Ford. This this was the last tour was peanut butter. We had a new van. Oh. So and peanut butter oh, had right, its own right. problems. I forgot yeah. about peanut butter. Yeah, but, but the blue the blue stripe white van. Yeah, Vanessa. Yeah. That I mean, you guys rolled that up and down the I five. We rolled so that. Many times. I drove the, drove that thing in Manhattan, dude. I mean, we rolled that thing across so the country. That was like the war wagon. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god. I've never seen a band load out and load in more efficiently. Like you, you guys would middle a lot. Well, that like. was Mike Lewis. He was like the Tetris master and, of loading. And because we did it a lot. <laughs> you, you guys were. You guys from the from the last song to the doors are closing and we're loaded was like it was something to watch like you can make it a documentary about how efficient it was you guys all working in this like seamless team dude we, we just wanted to get the fuck out of there you guys were point. the best uh, actually we're becoming we're, we're, best. we're becoming pretty good on our tours yes and it's sort of <laughs> the, the same thing Susan Susan has become the Mike Lewis I've, I've become the Tetris master yeah I, I'm, <laughs> I'm just a, a Sherpa I just go in and grab gear and <laughs> There's a podcast in Portland. It's called Tour Punisher. Yeah, the, it's amazing. Uh, I want to advertise on it, but uh, I don't. Know, I haven't reached out to him. But that, it, that's hosted by Ryan Soli, right? He's one of the guys. Yeah, yeah. It's the builders and the butchers guys. Uh, there's two of them. I forget the other guys. The amazing live band. Amazing. Yeah, record. we love that band. Yeah, and uh, they, but the, the the premise of the podcast is all these horror stories of bands on tour, like, and oh, these are man. signed bands with like you know real tours, and they're still in the van, they're crashing at people's houses. You know, I love a concept album. <laughs> well, this is what I'm saying. With this, 
I would want to come back to is the Blue Skies van, right? You guys are up and down the I-5. Like, Sacramento, we're crashing with fans. L.A., like, I mean, I don't know how many hotel rooms you guys have. Not many. Few, few <laughs> and far between. Yes. So I, whenever I listen to the Tour Punisher podcast, which is available everywhere podcasts are, so, are uh, oh. available, it always reminds me of the real true road warriors, you know, and uh, which I'm, I'm so jealous because I never got to – I don't think I would want to do that anymore. It sounds too rough. But when you're 25 or whatever and, you know, you're all into playing music. I'm know. still going on the road, but we're doing it easy. Easier these we're days. doing easier gigs. Can I give yeah. you a couple yeah. of tour Punisher drops? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so one is no bananas in the van. Ooh. What do you think? He <laughs> has a story about that. It's not yeah. pretty. <laughs> that's, that's a big reoccurring I th- thing. I think Mike Lewis would agree with that one. Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's the, just let it go with that. The <laughs> other one is waffle stomper. When you take a shit in the bathtub and it, you squish it down the drain. All right, you guys. No, no this is like Whoa. That, that's, that's a tour Punisher. Yeah, no, I I only know about that because of the tour Punisher podcast. So, who does that? Uh, yeah, that's like people beyond. sharing hotel rooms <laughs> because you got to go so bad well, and somebody's or, on the can. The toilet's broken. Oh, whatever. Yeah, because we <laughs> do. We, yeah, we do stay at ex- excellent hotels, us bands. Yeah, but that's life on the road, you know. Yeah. And you guys were so good at loading in, loading out. I just, I man, watching you guys load out was like fucking poetry in motion you know most bands they take their time it's a battle who's gonna who's gonna load gear who's we gonna were, actually we were just one of those bands that was always on the four band bill and and uh and on the road so we were fighting for money so we were there like you know you'd leave your gear in the club to the last minute because sometimes it was a holdout of like we want to go home we want our money you know uh we'll get our shit out of here once we get paid it was amazing to watch. Thank you. So <laughs> you made the decision to leave Permapress before the condo development even happened. I will. When we were on that, that tour and I had all that time to think, uh, and I was mulling it through my head. Like I was saying, like, you know, is our landlord going to let us buy it out and I, I started to realize that gentrification had been rolling up the road and it was one block away it, you know they'd taken this old gas station and turned it into the zipper and uh, there's a f- fancy coffee shop which I was a regular at and uh, a place to get you know it was a classic Portland place remember you couldn't get any normal food in there uh, it was hilarious but you could get beer it was a nice place to go after sessions or for lunch and that kind of thing but I, I, it started to occur to me that, like, well, I started to play the game. You ever play the game, where do you see yourself in five years? Yeah. Ever, I mean, doesn't everybody? Yeah. And in this particular situation and thinking about it while being on the road, I was like, you know, in five years I don't see myself being at Permapress anymore, and it has nothing to do with me. That if this guy doesn't buy us out, it's on some like we're the target for gentrification. We have a shitty building with toilets that nobody knows where they go to. Uh, it's rat infested, uh, you know, and then on that, that same tour, that was when things I was like, well, what am I going to do? Uh, and I, I couldn't think about leaving Portland. That just didn't occur to because me. That also means leaving blue skies. No, by then, like on this particular tour, I was like, 
that's a whole different story. Right. Uh, it wasn't like a bad tour, but the band just got to be a point where it was really hard to keep it going uh, because of the way personalities are. Well, and that kind of thing. If I could interject, if you don't mind, you you lost two key members right at the end, and you replaced them with. You we we were always volatile with members, uh, but when we started to hit our stride and we became these road warriors, we did we did lose two key members, but. Uh, you and Mike Lewis were kind of the core of the. Yeah, I don't want sure. I don't want to give those guys yeah. too much credit. It's not that I'm dissing them. I. I you know they they were great and they did things. Yeah, it was but, it was kind of iconic when it was like the four piece with um yeah you know, it Kelly was. and Paul and like you know it was kind of it was, it was kind of the iconic Blue Skies lineup. But Mike was there from the very beginning to the very end, and it was sort of a a different. Uh, I mean, I had good relationships with these other guys, but the amount of work that people would put in it's very hard to keep and a band people's life going go, like that people's lives go different ways and like we're at that age where people's lives are going different ways and like you know it's just it was just destined to happen yeah it's, it, it's, it's hard it's weird it's really because hard. like we put it's out hard. six studio records and Mike played on all but one the very first one and the other two guys like one of them played on two and one of them played on two and a half uh, of those guys. And I don't want to minimize it, but to me, like uh, when I look back, there's there's three quintessential Blue Skies albums to me, which is Love Is Not Enough, Serenades and Hand Grenades. Uh, actually, there's kind of four. Embracing the modern age, and then the self self titled one, which was a new member that that was, that one encompassed the new members. Yeah, the last two were the strongest, which is the self titled one and embracing the modern age. And embracing the modern age and the self titled one have completely different lineups in bass and drums and. The last one we have the addition of Mark officially on keyboards. The great Mark Breitenbach. Yeah, Mark played on um, I think every but one of those studio albums. An album. amazing keyboard player, uh, <coughs> skill musician. We would love to get yeah. him down here. Yeah, I would love to get him down here, but it's hard. I he's, realize he's had but, uh, you know a hell of a couple of years. Yeah, and, uh, but you can find all of his music on five two five records dot com. And if I could just say, you know, one of my favorite Blue Skies songs from Serenades is Susie, Please Come Home. I mean, uh, the video you guys shot, mm -hmm. Mount Hood, or where where was that? That was up on Mount Hood, yeah. yeah. In the middle of the snow. <laughs> you guys are in the middle of a snowpack. Well, when we got there, it was sunny, and it was nice, and that was the plan. And then uh, literally, <laughs> I, I remember this, Justin goes, all right, action. And I remember looking to my right, because we were in a little valley, and there's this like it looked like an avalanche but Hello, it, was ju Oregon. it was just a storm <laughs> just came down and, and and by the end of the first shot you know that he you know 30 seconds or whatever we were all in the storm and it was just like well keep going <laughs> you guys spent all day out there getting coverage right I mean, no 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 we like we lasted like 
three hours? No, like probably like twenty minutes. Well, the video, <laughs> the video came out unbelievable. It's well, they were shooting. I think they were shooting more than one camera. I don't remember. Uh, I all I rem- I mean, I remember some things about that very vividly. I don't remember how many cameras there were, but I think there was more than one. I think there was two. I, I thought there was at least three, but it's uh, been a while since. Well, I've seen but it. but they've they moved, and it was very like. All the plans were set because it was even when it was sunny, it was very difficult to move in this deep powder and all the snow we were in, and it was spring or melty <laughs> at least when we were there. I don't remember what it was probably fall, but it was like very melty. <laughs> I believe that video is still up on YouTube. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, there was some controversy with the band about that, but let's. Uh, well, there's nothing worse. Let oh, that pass. I- when you lose a bass player and a drummer, that's the end of most bands. There's no coming back from that. I mean, uh, other than months and months and months of auditions to try to find the right two people, uh, you, on the other hand, found two new guys who were amazing. And it was it seemed from an outsider's perspective, with no personal attachment to any of these guys, like, oh, wow, that was fast. Like, boom, you guys are back up and running, recording. On I the think road. it was just because we were... Uh, we were still even amongst all this, like a band on the rise in people's minds. And so we were a desirable band for good musicians to be in. So it was easy to attract people. Uh, I, those two guys, uh, Jason and Grant, I love them dearly, but, but also like it was so fast. And these guys weren't really road warriors like us. We were in a position where we couldn't afford guys that we needed. You know, we just didn't make enough money on the road. And so we didn't get guys that were used to the road. And uh, it was doing shows and even regionally. We were mainly regional for that last album, like just the the Pacific Northwest. We We did one or two tours. Well, I can remember one in particular. You guys flew to New York. I remember Mark had to go Oh, I flew them to New York a couple times. Yeah, Yeah, we did. Yeah. That was on... Yeah, yeah, that was uh, on... Greg O'Dell. The last tour was Greg O'Dell, and I think we had... Did we have Dave Burkham on the last tour? What bass player did we bring on the very last tour? I know some of the last shows we had Dave Burkham, but I can't remember if he was on on the last tour. I I I mean, Grant was on the very last tour. I but mean, we lost Jason. Oh at that no, point. you had um, um. Oh, Joe Mangus. Joe Mangus. Joe Mangus was Joe in. Mangus. No, he was in the interim. That was that was yeah, a weird was tour. Interim, interim drummer. We still had Kelly when we had Joe Mangus on the tour. That was a man. That tour was hard. I I I only know this from Mark's perspective because from an outsider's perspective, I'm not in the band. I don't. I'm not. You know. I mean, I'm listening. I'm not you know, tuned into all your tour dates. But uh, I just remember Mark's like, yeah, I got to go to New York and play this show with Blue Skies. And it was a big moment. I was like, holy yeah. fuck, you're going to fly from Portland to New York to do one gig? And then he had No, this- no, we usually do three or four. And okay. it was, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know what we did, but we were we were in a position where we had to go to fucking New York City was to Philly, appease guys the Philly people a couple we times were working and, with. And uh, Dawson. Yeah. Like- I loved it. I still love doing all that. It just, it, but it takes a toll on you. And it's a lot of it's, it's not all, it's definitely not all glory. I mean, there's, there's, there's moments that make you live for it, but a lot of it, 
is really hard. Uh, you know, and the, the hard part eventually for us outweighed the things that were making us want to keep doing it. One of the things that comes up on the Tour Punisher podcast a lot is Bakersfield. It seems like every band... I never played Bakersfield, okay, well, but I, I like Bakersfield, but I understand everybody's pain. Everybody that... Every <laughs> we band like, that we goes, like the Bakersfield sound. Like That's like kind of an, a new inspiration for um, yeah. the sound we're going on now, right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been a, a thing for me, but it's come to the surface. It's notorious in the van world. Uh, it's, a rough, it's a rough crash. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, for sure. What uh? What are people's stories like? Where are they playing there? Uh, Europe, all over. Man. No, no, no. The Bakersfield. Bakersfield, because there's like oh, the club yeah. situation's kind of weird. Well, I just tell you from the last episode of the Tour Punisher podcast. I forget who was on. I'm sorry, but uh, they were staying in Bakersfield at a fan's house. Uh, the drummer hooked up with a girl at the gig, and one of the guitar players is pitching a tent in the backyard because he's allergic to cats, and the, uh-huh. the yard is filled with leaves. And so he goes to sleep, and at some point during the night, the drummer and the girl get together at her house, and it turns out that the place they're crashing is her quote-unquote boyfriend, even though oh boy. she thinks they're broken up. So long story short, this guy, he goes trying to bust down the door, uh, doesn't get in, the cops get called, he, goes, he gets arrested, he goes to jail, and then he gets out, and he comes back to the crash house, unbeknownst to the rest of the members, especially the guy in the tent in the backyard, who is now covered in spiders, right? Like, it just oh was one of those deals. <laughs> and then the dude's like, hey, oh you want to go get ed- eggs Benedict? <laughs> like, we, got just... st- we got stuck in Bakersfield one time, and we... Um, um, we got stuck for a snowstorm. Yeah, it was a snowstorm, and the, the highways were closed, and, like, we had no choice but to get, like, a... Um, Going over the top. You know, like a, you know, no, 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 well, first we... we Roach Motel. <laughs> first we tried to wait it out, and we went to the Crystal Palace. Yeah, we went to the Crystal Palace. Had some chili, which is, is Buck Owens' bar and uh, performance space, and that was cool. Have you ever been there the Crystal Palace? I don't think so. Oh, yeah. While sitting there, we decided, or came to terms with that like they're not going to open the Tachipi pass tonight like it's a snowstorm it's getting dark it's night we're not making it home and so uh susan got on priceline and got us a motel six <laughs> motel six bakersfield yeah. and uh you know so we're having a good time having a few drinks at the crystal palace and like i said eating some chili yeah. and uh it gets real late, and we head over to the Motel 6. <laughs> the three rooms around our room, the two on either <laughs> side and the one below us, are all boarded up with plywood. This is, with broken this is out like windows. road dogging it, for sure. Yeah. Fucking <laughs> uh, crazy people, meth people, like, wandering the hotel, this whole, you know, the fucking harshest of harsh <laughs> of Bakersfield, which is... a. I mean, there's a lot of rough places in the U.S., but I know enough of Bakersfield without even playing there to know it's one of the roughest. <laughs> Easy. Uh, it was like the only hotel left in town because like everybody was stuck on... No, there were other hotels, but we weren't willing to pay the price. It was a regret. I remember that. Because this, <laughs> but, this is a new rule. But the rule other thing, they were corralling we people about, into tour, like the fairgrounds or something. Rule. I remember yeah. that. Like you got to stay no in the fairgrounds. No more Motel 6 in Bakersfield. <laughs> yeah. like, no bananas in the van. Yeah. I, will, I will do Motel 6 in some places, but Motel 6 in Bakersfield is... Man... 
Hey, all you 525 fans out there, I want to tell you about an amazing little documentary I shot back in 2017, all about the last days of the 525 house in Portland, Oregon. We weren't the only ones getting evicted. That is a big pile of steaming shit that someone just left on our doorstep today. Just ran out the fucking greasiest fucking bar in Portland for a baby party. I'm gonna rip your balls off so you cannot contaminate the rest of the world! I will motivate you, private pile! Please don't throw the bottle. Quit giving me awesome ideas. Kyle Gibson? Yeah. yeah. He punched me in the face. Get out of here! Last Days of 525, a documentary available on the 525 Records YouTube channel. And, of course, as always, on 525records.com. Now, back to the podcast. So you leave Portland. You record a record called So Long City. I started so started to record that in the interim period between... Well, I started to record it before I realized I was leaving. We bought a, a house for super cheap in Joshua Tree in 2014. It's just Susan and I work for ourselves. Uh, <laughs> we this all, was before all, the hype about Joshua Tree existed. Yeah, always looking for an angle. So I'll just tell everybody. Like We bought a two-bedroom, two-bathroom house in Joshua Tree. You're staying at it, Elliot. That's the Airbnb game. Yeah, we paid $87,000 for that house. A steal. It's a steal. It was ridiculous. Uh so that was our foot in the door. In yeah, the kind of facilitated our move. You're still in Portland. You buy. Yeah, we were we were just looking for an, an investment. We had a little bit of money from selling my house uh, in Portland when we moved in together and did some things like that. And uh, we were like, "What can we do to like improve this?" And uh, we came here on vacation. And Susan loved the community. I've loved this community for a long time uh, and been interested in it. And. Uh, she got on whatever it was, Redfin at that point in time. And uh, she's like, you're not going to believe what houses cost here. Yeah, so the final blow, kind of everything, when Blue Skies got to the end of that tour, Mike Lewis and I were hanging out here in Joshua Tree at the, the house at the end of the tour. And I was thinking about work and this upcoming album that I had coming to work on. And... uh Oddly enough, at this point, I was telling you we had problems with Peanut Butter the Van. Uh, Peanut Butter the Van had broke down at one point, and we had to get a rental car that we were required to return in Fresno. But Peanut Butter the Van was fixed, and Mike and I were the last two members left on this tour. Everybody else had flown home uh, by the time we got to Southern California. And uh, so Mike and I started heading home uh, towards Portland, coming up all the roads and coming past here and uh, riding in two separate vehicles. He was driving peanut butter and I was driving some weirdo Mitsubishi thing that we'd rented out of Fresno. And uh, as I came up around the corner here at, at 
border and Ricci Road, I got a phone call from this artist I was working with. No, I got a phone call from a recording studio that I was taking this artist I was working with. And uh, they were pulling our dates. And I was really upset because I It was knew supposed to be a destination recording. It was so. a destination recording. Like, I was doing a lot of this, like going to other recording studios and freelancing. And uh, I knew it would get me fired. And that was kind of the last straw between the guy wanting to buy us out of our lease, me not being able to see the studio existing, that gentrification would roll through the neighborhood within five years, and the fact that I didn't have control of a studio people wanted to go to, and uh, it was causing chaos in my life because other people were deciding the schedule and not me. And yet again, you had to move studios. Well, I did, but this is the point where it occurred to me I'm driving down Ricci Road right through Landers here. I was like, I thought about my situation in Portland. I was like, I can't make a move. The economics of a lateral move is to get an equivalent space as to what I'm in, and I need a better space. An equivalent space is going to be even more expensive. And Daunting. I can't, I can't afford it. I don't want to rent because... You've been there. You've I've been there. That. I've been renting, and the reason that my situation is out of control is I'm a renter. And I looked out this direction, right, at Goat Mountain, and was like, but I could afford land here. And I called Susan, I was like, I got this stupid idea. And what did you think when he first proposed moving to the Joshua Tree area? Well, since we got our Airbnb in um, 2014, the rental property, we already had that intact, and it was already kind of going at a certain level. Um, I was excited about moving to the area. I was excited about change. And um, when Pat proposed that idea to, to me about um, maybe, um, he didn't get to this, but um, buying some land out here and building a, a permanent situation, I was I was super excited about it. You're like, fuck yeah, let's do this. She thought that part was a good idea, but I was like, but in the same phone call, I'm like, but it entails all in, selling everything we own up in Portland, our house, her salon, and eventually rebuilding here. And the murder wins. Murder we didn't know wins. about them. Though. We didn't know about the murder wins. Uh, <laughs> she was okay with it. Uh, Take the leap. And I told her next, I said, well, if we do something crazy like this and we buy land and this kind of thing, like, get this, like, nacho. You know, and that's all I had to say was, you know, Ignacio. Ignacio, he's in architecture school. Is and his, his nickname is Nacho? Yeah, yeah short for, nacho. that's where nachos come from. Uh, Ign- okay. Ignacio, somebody named Ignacio invented the dish, and they his <laughs> short for Ignacio is nacho. I used to have issues with this, and I was like, how about I just call you Iggy? Like, is that appropriate? Like, Should we call him yeah. nacho? Like, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> and then, then I found out, too. And You're canceled. Yeah, no, no, it's cool. It's all good. He, prefer, mean, he prefers nacho. <laughs> so. Regardless of who he is or what he does, he built an amazing room. Yeah. And, uh, he did a fantastic job. So, th- well, this is a funny funny part of the story here. Uh, so I told Susan, I'm like, I think we have Nacho design it. She's like, oh, you know, 
she'd heard the same stories about the house on the lake with the tree in the moon and <laughs> you know things like that and she's like that's absolutely the right guy fuck for yeah our situation and the funny part and I laughed about this and was honest with him from the very beginning I said and you're probably the only guy we can afford because you're a friend and you're only in the second year of your architecture school and if I walk this fucking crazy nut house idea into any architecture firm yeah, uh, like we, that's where all our game. money's going to end yeah. up and there's not going to be a studio <laughs> <laughs> it's just stars aligning yeah stars aligning and so still at this point I'm like maybe like around this part of Ricci Road you know Alta Landers that's the cross California. street coming down and uh, I tell Susan uh, let's hang up let me call Katie uh, I have Nacho's number but I really felt uh, it was appropriate to call Katie first because she was my older friend of the two and a very close friend, and, and also because I worked with Katie and because of doing something like this, I was like, it had the potential to turn our lives upside down. All of our lives. All of our lives, the four of us. What if it all goes wrong? Yeah, I could be really upset with you. Uh, we never felt that way. We, nothing ever came to anything like that. Nothing ever really went bad. I mean, we had rough spots or whatever. You have that naturally doing any uh, project like this, but it was easy uh, and it was good with them. But the, I called Katie up and I said, hey, I got this wacky idea of uh, buying land and building a studio in the desert. And uh, I wanted to ask Nacho to design it. And uh, I kind of felt it would be best to call you first and, ask if that was okay before like we ran off on the crazy train here and she's like i love it she's like i'm handing the phone to nacho uh if he doesn't say yes tell him to hand the phone immediately back to me because the answer is yes <laughs> which i loved from his wife to nacho's credit he said yes uh he was in on the idea he was like whoa this is crazy i'm like yeah i know it's crazy uh, but he was in, and we were all in, and uh, uh, it went from there, and we got a lot of crazy help. Uh, at one point in this time of the design of the studio, I was uh, working at Bob Weir's studio, of all people, and Bobby gave us his blueprints, allowed me to photograph his blueprints uh, off his desk one afternoon, uh, which was a huge help to us it really uh, uh it was something nacho could look at that things were in the prints of like you know running cables that made him start to consider things and that kind of thing i think he may have list lifted the control not not so sure several often. studios um since yeah, like we, since we Katie's talked in about the this like he he's He's done his like due diligence, and he's toured several studios like throughout the country, mm -hmm. and like he came and uh, watched me work for a day at Permapress, and came and watched me work a day at Jackpot in town, uh, in Portland, Oregon. He went to some studios in Chicago. I think he went. Uh, I know he went to some studios in Nashville as well, and he went to the Sweetwater Studios in Illinois, and or Indiana, wherever they are. I think they're Illinois. And here we are, five years later. Yep. You guys have been in the desert. Yeah. Well, we started the process at that point. We started designing it, getting all our permits, doing everything on the up and up, because uh, we knew we were going to, you know, 
build something that people would notice. Uh, what is the website for Goat Mountain? Oh, it's just Goat MT, like Goat Mountain, Goat, G O A T M T dot com. Uh, we don't do much there on the website, but it's a way where you can find contact information. The only thing we do on the internet at all at this point, after being open, we're almost open. It'll be two years next month. And the Instagram but is Goat Mountain Recording. All we have is an Instagram. <laughs> on Instagram. So if anybody wants to come out here and do a little sesh, Goat Mountain Recording and, on and Instagram. If I could just say, it's the benefit of being out here is the outdoor environment. Mm-hmm. Most studios, you go in, it's a windowless environment. You're in a control room, a live room, and it's just... A total sweat box. You're, you're connected to the, the desert here. With here, you, after you get done with ripping a take, you can walk outside. You can enjoy the view. What a good time to go OTG right before the pandemic, right before the world changed forever. It would, it was a necessary move for this situation uh, just to have good power so we would have good sound. Uh, I, I mean, man, I can't tell you, like, all of the studios I've ever worked in and I've owned have all been on the grid and there's all been issues because of dirty power on the grid and just dealing with things. Not terrible issues, but just little buzzes, little things like, oh shit, that's happening. And being completely separate and in charge of our own thing and having, uh, an, you know, a real sine wave inverter, uh, Like I mean, the quiet here, the the noise floor is low. Like it's the studio is is when nothing's running and you're not on the microphone. Like it's quiet, even with the doors open. I know it's quiet. <laughs> I heard I heard Andrew. Andrew's sitting with us now. He doesn't have a mic. But, Andrew Leach, but, the uh, great Andrew Leach. I heard Andrew. Walking outside today, in, uh, he didn't know I was close. I was like doing something in another room, but the door was open, and he's like, "Oh my god, it's so quiet." <laughs> <laughs> well, also I can say that like I was starting to take, and I was like, "Where did my quietness go?" I could sense it was gone. And Elliot over here, he turned on a, the roads. Yeah, the he's roads. Good. Yeah, he turned on the roads. And I could hear just the buzzing of of just the motor, yeah. Not the motor, but like just the. Uh, oh, it's just the it's just the tubes vibrating. It's just tubes it's a, vibrating. It's not even. It's a nothing sound. And this was <laughs> like twenty feet away from me. Yeah. And it was echoing in my ears, and I was like, I can't do this. No, no, no. This is not right. It, I've gotten so used to it after the last two days. Yeah, so it's, it's, like, it's crazy how quiet it is. Yeah. Here. It's lovely. It's it's very lovely. And you go outside, and it's still quiet. I'm like, how is it? You'll hear a dog or a coyote in the distance or Elliot coughing. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, either way. That's like 50 or 60 <laughs> feet away. Moonrise, yeah. You hear yeah. an Elliot coughing, no, it's, coyote. It's, it's, it's just beautiful. <laughs> it's, there's a quietude here. It's it's uh, very quiet in where we live in Landers. Uh, I, I mean, there's no, there's no, the nearest, there's no... <laughs> I don't even explain this. It's just a California desert highway. The closest, well, the closest paved road is a mile and a half away. But the closest, like, highway you'll find on a map is nine miles away. Yeah. Well, 
I, I know the difference between this and Portland, which has been a minute because I've been in the country for a bit, but like it is that it's either so quiet and so calm and wonderful or it's really loud and I love it. You know, and yeah. it's like really. I like Manhattan. I, yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of one of those people. I either like, like, I either like, like to be out in the middle of nowhere where there's nothing, or in the heart of the city. You know, exactly. I, I either want in the in the middle ground in those middle ground areas. You're like, I get, I get a little bored and I'm like weird, but at least they still love music. Like, we've been starting to have better luck outside of the urban areas. That's, it's better now. Yeah. Because as Portland's been more and more gentrified, I feel like people take for granted how much music there is in Portland. And all these great musicians that go there to be musicians suffer for, for it, you know? And if they, like, and now I go to, a, like, my hometown or, like, some small town in the middle of nowhere, I play... I play a few songs and I get like, you know, 20 Facebook requests and people are like asking me when I'm doing yeah. my next show and I have, you know, a bucket full of tips, you know? Yeah. And Andrew's living in Oak Ridge, Oregon, which we've stopped in a few times. It's a beautiful spot, yeah. I like that. What's that little brew pub there? Uh, it was uh, it, it was just called uh, the Brewers oh, yeah, Junior. Oh, Oak Ridge. I love but, that. Yeah, yeah. But the, the owner, I, I used to play there, but the owner died. And Is that what happened? I knew something yeah. happened, yeah. And now it's called the Three-Legged Crane. Yeah, that's right. I like that place. I, I stop in there. Uh, I've never played there, but I've sent musicians there because I stop in there. I come down Highway 58 in Oregon, uh, sometimes heading to Pickathon Yeah. in the summer from here. Uh, I work at Pickathon. Uh, and uh, uh, it's like by the just the, the rhythm of the journey it's like where I'm ready to get a meal and stop with the dog. And I know I can get a, a, a beer and sit like on the sidewalk or, or even bring the dog in. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's been a regular stop. I sent Rags Rosenberg and he's played like, I think at this point, like three, four times coming through that area. Yeah. That place uh, is great. There's a few other spots there now, but like, yeah, even that, like, uh, yeah, I remember the first time I really played a show there. I was in Portland still. And uh, Annie Dang, um, I don't know if you know Annie Dang or not. I've heard the name, yeah, I don't know. Uh, well, we got drunk one night, and I was like, you can come visit my mom. And she's like, yeah, I should. And it just turned into this whole thing, and we decided we're going to go down to Oak Ridge. And we did it um, on in two weeks. And her brother came, and her bandmates came, and all of her friends showed up, like maybe like seven of us. And we showed up there, and... And uh, two days before, I said, can we do a show? And they're like, yeah, sure. We went to the hot springs, stayed the night, took mushrooms, and then played a show. And uh, and then that, that, that day. That hot springs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> McCready, it's, probably, it's probably gone now. I don't know. I haven't been there since the fire. No, it's, it's still there. Oh, <laughs> after yeah. the fire, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, we came back, and we played a show, and shit, they fed us well. They gave us all these beers. We had no tab. We had three hundred dollars and like three hundred dollars in tips, you know, nah, from like amazing. thirty people in town. And ever since, they've been calling me trying to get it to happen mm -hmm. again. And I'm like, I try every year, but like, you know, it's hard because you know people get. So, dude, now that you uh, live out here, you, you guys got a Moose Lodge in Oak Ridge. 
We do. I'm a member of the Moose. I'm a member of the Moose too. Are oh, you really? We, we have a Moose, moose Lodge here. We should. Well, my oh my God! No. Why we, are we there the, right mo- now? the Moose <laughs> is not open while you're here. But but dude, you're coming back. I will. And we need to plan it for days that we can go to the fish fry at the mm. Moose Lodge on Friday. Maybe see Jan Brown play. Cool. I mean, I call it a moose migration. I've been doing it quite a bit lately. Uh, I don't actually. I don't want to talk bad about my moose, but. I'm starting to not favor my moose anymore. I was actually working as a bartender there. Oh, I was cooking you breakfast. You were all in. I was yeah, all you in. Were all I in. was an officer. It was, yeah, I was like, no, okay, no. what kind? This is like I've only been there like eight Dude, months. Dude, yeah, I didn't even meet the the you know the Thursday where you go and you get the key. Like yeah. I still haven't we done know, that. We never got a yeah. key. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't. I just want to shop for fish fry. Am I but I, good but I belong, and I, I go, and I I have drinks and. Uh, 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 sometimes go for a hot dog or a hamburger or a, a special. I like the Friday, the the fish and chips on Friday we have at ours here. It's really yeah. very good. Uh, and sometimes I go in for Sunday the breakfast and uh, uh, Bloody, Mary, Bloody yeah. Maria's. Uh, <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, because oh man. Uh, yeah, I was doing, I was also doing karaoke. I was KJing on oh Saturdays, so I was all in. I was yeah. so far in. I can feel them starting to twist my arm to play there, and I'm no. like, dude, like, uh, I'd have to actually check it out first. I don't think my, my shtick <laughs> is gonna go over well. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the hardest part. You got a great shtick, but no one likes it. <laughs> my shtick is similar to your shtick. This is probably you know. So yeah, it's like that's not a. They they want to. A band that everybody can line dance to at exactly, my place. Yeah. And I'm playing country tunes, but it's probably you. I'm probably going to bum you out too much to dance mm. while we're at it. So, mm. <laughs> in your beer it keeps your beer full. If you can do it. Elliot Cotts, you're an amazing man. I'm so glad that you came down here to the desert. I came glad. down here to the desert. You live in the same fucking desert. <laughs> no, thank you, Elliot. You just lived in the air. You live in the air conditioned part. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to Robert Bruce Burnham, Butte, Montana, Sadness on an Incline. You can find it on FoxyFiveRecords.com. Andrew Leach, an amazing musician. He is one in a million. He's a ukulele master. You can find all his stuff uh, wherever music is sold. Bandcamp primarily, if you want to really support the artist. And I look forward to the new record, which we're recording at the fabulous Goat Mountain Recording Studios, owned by Pat and Susan Kearns, who are the guests today on this episode of the podcast. So thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, cheers. 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 Boom! We're done.
Gonna start it.